Tonight we study the church at Philadelphia. This was a very unique church in that this is the only church that did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. So we would have to say Jesus' evaluation of the seven churches, Philadelphia would come in first as the most faithful. The church was marked by faithfulness. They did not deny Christ. And they weren't perfect. No one is. No church is. But they were faithful. And so therefore they received a positive evaluation. I am so encouraged by this because none of us are perfect. If we had to live perfect lives in order to receive a positive evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ, we could all forget it right now. But God is not going to evaluate us based upon perfection, or a standard of perfection. He's going to evaluate us based upon how faithful we were with what we, what we were given on the whole. On the whole, was your life faithful? On the whole, was it unfaithful? And then the degree to which the faithfulness took place. The Church of Philadelphia is a great model for us in understanding this truth. The text reads this way in Revelation chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold... I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, which is a word that means brotherly love, was a city in Asia Minor that was founded by a man named Attalus II, and named after his beloved brother, Eumenes II. So it was exactly named. It was a city of opportunity in many ways. It was a city of opportunity economically. It was also a city of opportunity for service for God and for evangelism. It was a major producer of grapes. And so it's not surprising that the principal pagan deity of this city was Dionysus, which was the god of wine. Dionysus also, by the way, was the god of fertility, ritual madness, and religious ecstasy. Dionysus was also very popular in Ephesus and in Corinth. And if you think back to Ephesus, Paul tells the Ephesian church, who was quite well aware of this goddess, or this god Dionysus, god of fertility, ritual madness, and religious ecstasy, don't be drunk with wine but be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. That's also why he will tell the Corinthians, who are very steeped in Dionysus worship as well, to flee fornication. See, these things aren't said in a vacuum. They're said in a cultural, it's a cultural setting, a cultural setting of Dionysus worship. But it appears as though the church at Philadelphia didn't buy into that background. So this is the only church that has the distinction of giving no rebuke 
from Jesus. It's essentially a message of praise and encouragement to keep it up. In other words, he's, if I could put it this way, he's patting them on the back and saying, good job, keep up the good work, guys. And that's interesting to me that Jesus sandwiched this message in between two churches where he had to have serious rebukes. The rebuke to the church at Sardis, and then we'll study next week the church at Laodicea. Laodicea is going to receive a different distinction. Philadelphia is the only church that didn't receive a rebuke. Laodicea is the only church that's not going to receive any praise. Jesus represents himself to this church as holy and true, or perhaps holy and genuine, who has the key of David with absolute authority to open and to shut. In chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is said to have the keys to both death and Hades. But here in this passage, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, he who is holy and true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, this is probably a reference back to Isaiah, or an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, speaking of Eliakim. And it's recorded there, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. He shall open and no one will shut, and he shall shut and no one will open. So Eliakim is charged with keeping the line of the Davidic dynasty going. Jesus Christ here is said to have the keys of David. He, of course, is the ultimate in the Davidic dynasty, and he also has the authority to open and to shut. He has the key to truth and holiness. But watch this. He also has the key to opportunity and service and testimony. When Jesus Christ opens a door, it's open. And when he shuts a door, it's shut. He is sovereign. Our job as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is never to, to bust open a door. It's to faithfully walk through doors that God himself has opened. Or, if we want to put it in the negative, to faithfully acknowledge a closed door. And again, when he opens the doors, they are open. When he shuts doors, they're shut, and he is sovereign. It's telling that Jesus expresses this to a faithful church because faithful believers need to constantly remember who it is that opens the door and who it is that shuts doors for Christian testimony and service. We need to remember that too. In verse 8 of this chapter, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a great evaluation. Now, some people say you have a little power. They, they look at that phrase and they say, well, this may be a, back, a backdoor rebuke to this church. No, it's not a backdoor rebuke at all. What he's saying is you've got a little power. I've got all the power. The power that opens these doors, the power that's going to work, help you go through that and serve me is my power, not your power. That's not a rebuke at all. This is right in the middle of a very positive situation. Jesus promises open doors of opportunity that no one will be able to shut. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, Paul uses this, the open door metaphor, as one for gospel witness and for missionary activity or service opportunities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, and in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. So Jesus, we use that metaphor today too. We seem to have an open door for the gospel in this country. We have an open door for the gospel in that region of town or an open door for this particular ministry. It's the same. We get this right straight from this passage and from those three that I mentioned to you. Speaking of open doors in Christian service, I've had over the course of time many, many conversations with very sincere Christians who are looking to serve. They're looking for an open door, but they don't seem to be finding one. And it can be very discouraging. It could be that there is no open door for that person at that particular time. That's possible. Or it could be, and it has been, in the case of many folks that I've talked to, that they're dictating which door they want God to open. And they're saying, well, God's not opening that door. He's not opening any doors. Well, there's all kind of open doors in front of you. You just don't want to go through the door he's opening. Faithful believers will walk through the door that God opens. They're not looking to walk through a door that God has opened for someone else. And watch, they're also not jealous of the door that God has opened for someone else. There's a past generation of preachers that looked at the doors that were opened for Billy Graham. And they said, oh my, why doesn't God open those doors for me? They can look in the mirror. They can listen to tapes. I speak just as well as he did. Well, maybe you do. But that's not the door that God has opened for you. He opened that door for Billy. And he was, he's going to hold Billy responsible for that massive open door that he gave to Billy Graham. And he's going to hold you responsible for whatever door it is he has you walk through. And watch this too. If you look at the passage of the, where Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 10, you will not be evaluated on the door that he opens for somebody else. You're going to be evaluated on how faithful you were with the door that he opened for you. If you're always focused upon the door that Jesus has opened for somebody else, you will never be content. You'll never be happy in ministry and by the way, you will also not be rewarded because your focus will be on something else all the time and not on what God gave you. Are you a mother? How faithful were you to the calling that God gave you? Susanna Wesley was fairly faithful. I think she'll probably be really rewarded in heaven. She had two, two boys that didn't turn out too badly, Charles and John. You know, what if Susanna Wesley wouldn't have cared a thing about her role? And what, what if she wanted somebody else's role? We all have to be faithful to that which God has given us. Maybe your role is to anonymously be a caregiver for someone else, behind the scenes, taking care of that person. Well, you're doing something for God. That's one of the most important things we can do in this life, is to give a cup of cold water to someone else in Jesus' name. What if that's your role? What if you're a school teacher? What if you're an elementary school teacher, and your role as an elementary school teacher is to show the love of Christ and kindness to second, third, fourth graders. You may say, well, I never taught a Bible class, but you showed them God's love and, that, and God's kindness. That was the door that he opened for you. Whatever the door may be, we have many attorneys in our church. What if your job as an attorney 
was to show the love of Christ to your clients. I hope you see the point. We used to have a little metal thing on our refrigerator. You remember this that said, grow where you're planted. I don't know where we got it, but I love that phrase. Wherever God plants you, that's where you grow. Don't try to grow in somebody else's garden. It doesn't work that way. The phrase, little power, you have a little power, has been seen by some to be a mild rebuke, but that's probably searching too hard to find something negative about this church. Yes, they have a little power. Of course they have a little power, but God provides the empowerment to do His work. They don't need power on their own. In addition, He also provides the funds to do His work. And that's an important aspect of Christianity. Because as I see the Christian landscape today, so many people have forgotten Hudson Taylor's message. That the Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. Oh, if more people would realize that. We wouldn't have nearly so many separated shoulders in Christianity from people having their arms twisted so hard to give money to a particular cause. We wouldn't have so many slick presentations. We would just let needs be known and Christians would be motivated to participate. And by the way, maybe that's your open door. To participate in, in a ministry. It's a matter of faith to recognize that if you're doing what God wants you to do, then he's going to provide the funds for you to do it. Now, you, you may need to make the need known. That's true. But you don't have to beg for money. God will take care of whatever ministry he has for you. He'll take care of it with regard to opening doors, and he'll take care of it with respect to opening doors for financial support. In verse 8 again, the Philadelphians, we find, were loyal they had not denied his name. I know your deeds. I know what you have done. I know your works. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And in other words, I've given you this opportunity to serve because you have a little power and have kept my word. Some of the other churches had denied the name of Jesus, not the church at Philadelphia. They've kept his word. They did not deny his name. And they've kept the word of God. So they were a church that was theologically astute. Remember we had a church in the beginning that was theologically astute. The Ephesians church, the church at Ephesus. But they weren't following through on what they knew. The church at Philadelphia both knew and did. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to know and to do. That was the message of James in his epistle. One of the messages of James. What does it mean to be quick to hear? Well it doesn't mean just to be quick to listen to it. Or even to comprehend it. It means to be quick to listen to it and comprehend it. That's the first stage. And then we must follow through and do something with what we know. And that was the church at Philadelphia. The church at Ephesus knew but didn't do. The church at Philadelphia both knew and they did. And that's why they received this commendation. They're not denying the name of Jesus. They've kept his word and did not deny his name. You want to know what a great church looks like? You want to know what an individual Christian looks like that God considers to be at least above average? That's one that knows the Word and does the Word. Please don't get wrapped up in, in only half of that, no matter what half it is. Some people get wrapped up in, well, I know the Word, and that's it. I know it, so therefore I'm mature. Other people say, that's for the birds. I don't need to know anything. I'm just going to apply. 
The problem is, apply what? Now, you may apply basic moral principles in your life, and that's good. A lot of unbelievers do that, too. We need to both know and do. And this was a church that knew and did both. They were also loyal. There's a very important Hebrew term that you've heard me use dozens and dozens of times. It's the Hebrew term chesed. Chesed is one of the most important theological Hebrew words, in my, in my opinion. Chesed is the Hebrew term for love, or loyal love. It's one of the Hebrew terms for love. For loyal love, faith, for faithful love, for covenant love, for mercy, and for grace. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. And it's very context-dependent how one translates it. But in many of the contexts, it should be translated loyal love. Like my friend Fred Stowe, many of you remember Fred. Fred would always translate that, God, in this way, God loves you with a love that won't let you go. They had a loyal love for Jesus, like Jesus had a loyal love for them. As a result, Jesus would make those of the synagogue of Satan come and bow down to them, not in worship but in recognizing who was really serving God. The way that this is put in this, in this passage in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews but are not, who lie. Now what he's saying here, a, a fulfilled Jew is a Jew that recognizes Jesus as their Messiah. If you're Jewish by race, but you deny Jesus as the Messiah, you are not a fulfilled Jew. And there are plenty of non-fulfilled Jews out there right now that are still looking for the Messiah. These people in Philadelphia were apparently being criticized by people who said they were Jews but were not. And I find it so interesting. They're, they're said to lie here. But they're also said to be part of the synagogue of Satan. Did you notice that? And who's the father of lies? Satan. The very first thing he does with Eve is he lies to her. Wait a minute, what do, you, what do you mean you shall surely die? You're not going to surely die if you eat from the, that tree. That was a lie. And he got her with a lie. Well, these people that he's calling members of the synagogue of Satan, who apparently were Jewish by race, but had rejected the Messiah with it when it came to faith, they were lying, and presumably they were lying about the, the believers at the church of Philadelphia. Jesus is going to set it all right. I don't know if you've ever been lied about. I think all of us have from time to time. And it's very, very frustrating. I mean, you just want to get up on the rooftops and scream. They don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. I heard a famous radio commentator one time said, I really have yet to figure out how to handle it when I hear people lying about me. Do I use my radio program to set the record straight or do I ignore it? Because if I use the radio program to set the record straight, People are going to say, methinks he protesteth too loudly. You know, why is he even talking about this? If I don't say anything, they say, why didn't he defend himself? I don't know what the answer to that is either other than this. In this case, of the Church of Philadelphia, Jesus is going to set the record straight. And he's going to show that the people that were truly serving him were the faithful believers in Philadelphia who knew the word and were doing the word. Jesus is going to set the record straight. He's going to make them bow down at your feet, he says, and to know that I have loved you. 
Oh, isn't that, isn't that awesome? He's going to set the record straight in heaven, and everybody's going to know that he loved that church at Philadelphia. Just like I hope he sets the record straight, and everybody's going to know that he loves you. Nobody else may know how important you are in his plan now. You may not even know how important you are in his plan now. But if you're still here, God has a plan for you. And then a couple other things in verses 10 and 11. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Again, we go back to verse 8. And because you have, you have a little power and you have kept my word, he returns to it in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, or could be understood as steadfastness, but perseverance is a, is a better term for my understanding, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. You might can imagine this verse has serious ramifications for the study and theology we call eschatology, the, the doctrine of future things, as does a lot in the book of Revelation. This particular verse has been understood by most who study this from an evangelical standpoint to refer to a future event that we call the rapture or the resurrection of the church. The resurrection of the church that occurs before Daniel's 70th week or before the tribulation. When he said that hour of testing, most evangelical scholars believe that that hour of testing that's being referenced here is the tribulation. What we studied in Daniel is Daniel's 70th week, which will come in the future. Church-age believers, not just the church at Philadelphia, church-age believers will be resurrected before the tribulation. Now, we call this, theologically, a pre-tribulational view, meaning that Jesus will come for his church before the tribulation. Sometimes these theological terms can get a bit convoluted. This is a real easy one. Pre-tribulational means Jesus is coming before the tribulation, as opposed to in the middle of the tribulation or perhaps at the end of the tribulation. There are some people that would like to say the church goes through the tribulation. We go through all that time of cleansing. But that's not the, biblical, the best biblical case. The best biblical case is that the resurrection of the church happens before the tribulation begins. You will not go through the tribulation. What we're about to study in chapter 6 through 19 will be happening on earth while you're doing something else in heaven. You'll be going through the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. That's why we will review that as we're studying Revelation chapter 6 through 19 so you make sure where all the players are doing their playing. We will be in heaven while 6 through 19 occurs on earth because we will be resurrected out of here before that all starts. We'll study that more in a later study in the book of Revelation, but for now I want to stress that it is not only those who are faithful who will be kept from the period of testing, the tribulation, but the whole church. Faithful believers and unfaithful believers will be resurrected and saved from the tribulation. The reason I put it that way, there are no perfect believers. There are no perfectly holy believers except for the holiness we have in Christ. It's faithful or non-faithful, and it, then, then we have degrees of faithfulness in both, or unfaithfulness in both those categories. All the church is going to go up. That's when we'll receive our resurrection body. Now, there's one more, and I promise I, I won't get too detailed right now, but there's one more view that you may not have heard of. 
There's, you've heard of the pre-tribulational rapture. If you go to church here, I hope you've heard of that view. The mid-tribulational rapture, which means the church has got to get somewhat purified, go through some wrath and go up before it gets really tough. And the post-tribulational view, which means that the whole church goes through the whole thing. We've got to suffer all those things that are in 6 through 19. Both the mid- and the post-tribulational view, I think, are very difficult to sustain biblically. There's another theory that came about about 150 years ago called the partial rapture theory. And you might can figure out what that means. It means that at the rapture, the church, which they believe is pre-tribulational, that only the faithful believers will be taken. They would say that this promise is only to the faithful believers. And then God has to judge how faithful you were, whether or not you needed to go through the, through the tribulation or not. And they think that unfaithful believers will go through at least part of the tribulation. Now, for, if you're interested, I, I don't want to talk any more about that because I don't want to, like to spend a lot of time on, on false views. That's something for a seminary class or a Bible college class. But if you are interested in this idea of a partial revelation, John Wolverd wrote a terrific article that was published after he died, actually, in a, on a website called Bible.org. I think many of you have seen that site. Just go to Bible.org and plug in John Wolverd's name, and it'll be one of the articles that comes up about the partial rapture view. He goes through the whole historical development of that view and why it's it's not biblically valid. Dr. Wolver died in 2002, I believe. This was published in 2008. So it was about six years after he died that, that they published. So what they did, they, Dr. Wolver's estate gave them permission to publish it on Bible.org. So if you're interested, it'd be some good technical reading for you if you like things like that. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, when Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have in order that no one will take your crown. This is likely a reference to the imminent nature of the rapture rather than saying it's a brief period of time before he comes. Sometimes people get that confused I've actually had that thrown back into my face by non-Christians. They'll say, well, I thought, I thought Revelation told you Jesus is coming quickly. It's been about 1,900 years, hasn't it? Doesn't seem too quick to me. Well, it's not talking about time. It's talking about imminency. If something is imminent, it means that there's nothing that has to take place before this event happens. Nothing. The rapture could have occurred in the time Jesus spoke these words. Each generation of Christians should wonder if they're in the rapture generation because it could happen at any time. I don't believe in making predictions. The people that make predictions have, at least up until now for the last 1,900 years, have come across foolishly. 97 reasons why the rapture should occur in 1997. Well, it didn't. God knows when the rapture is going to occur. That's not our job. Our job is to live each day as though it was going to occur that day. Just like it's our job to live each day as though that was going to be our last day on earth for some other reason. We have no guarantee on tomorrow. You don't have any guarantee you're going to get home safely tonight. If God wants to take you home, He can take you home. So you better have lived today as though it was the last day you had here on this earth. And if we would live each day as though it's the last day, if, we ever, if every time we read our Bible, we would read it with the intensity that this is the last time I'm ever going to get to read my Bible. Somebody's going to either take it away from me, I'm not going to get another shot at it, I'm going to die, whatever it is. If we would live life with that kind of intensity, then we would be living the kind of life that the Philadelphians lived. It means that there's nothing that has to happen 
before the resurrection of the church could take place, meaning it could happen tonight. One of my good friends, one of my people I would consider a spiritual mentor was a guy named Robert Leitner. And in Robert Leitner's desk, when he was a professor at Dallas Seminary, there was a plaque that faced out. So you looked at it when you were speaking to him that said, perhaps today. It was a great conversation piece. Perhaps today. The Lord might come today. Be ready. In speaking with Dr. Leitner about his good friend, Dr. Wolverd, he spoke to Dr. Wolverd right before Dr. Wolverd went to be with the Lord. And Dr. Wolverd told him that it was one of the great disappointments in his life that it appears as though I'm going to die before the rapture of the church. He said, I was hoping that I would get to get to go through this event that I wrote about so much and that I talked about so much. You know what? He's still going to participate. He's just going to participate from the other direction. So the imminency of the rapture. So that no one will take your crown, to close this down, so that no one will take your crown. The nature of the crown, as it's stated here, is nonspecific. But it does seem to be some sort of reward for faithfulness. An ancient Greek culture, like the culture at Philadelphia, would have been very familiar with the concept of a crown, or a Stephanos. There were two kinds of crowns. One was the kind of crown that a king wore. Another one was a wreath. This is the wreath. This is the Stephanos that would have been awarded to someone who had excelled at, for example, one of the Olympic Games or or an athletic event, so that no one will take your crown. This is a reference to a reward for achievement as opposed to a crown that would be worn by one who was ruling. The believers in Smyrna, if you will remember, were promised a crown, but it was specific there, the crown of life. Perhaps this is another reference to that reward. It's very difficult to say. And then finally, the overcomer passage in verse 12, he who overcomes, or the one overcoming, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And then there are several things. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from my God, and my new name. The pillar terminology is an obvious metaphor referring to stability and permanence. There is no temple in the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 21. So this is not talking about a literal pillar. It's talking about uh, stability and permanence. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And then there's a threefold assurance of our identity with God with these three names. First, the name of my God. I will write upon him the name of my God. This is basically saying, this person belongs to me. The name of the city of my God, which by the way is Jerusalem, this indicates a right of citizenship. And my new name, which is the full revelation of his character, this is understanding Jesus in a more full sense. What does that mean? Whatever we understand of Jesus today, biblically, will not be changed when we get to heaven. It's not like we're going to learn some, some things about God that totally contradict what we already know. What we already know is the seed, is a seed level of what we will learn in heaven. Whatever we learn in heaven about God will be consistent but expanded about what we know now. And I hope that makes sense. 
You will learn new things about God in heaven, but it will be consistent with the way he's already revealed himself. This church was marked by faithfulness. They did not deny Christ. They learned his word and they did his word. They had opportunities for service and they took those opportunities. While no one is perfect, the church of Philadelphia was not perfect. They were faithful. Lord, thank you for this example of a faithful church. May it motivate us individually and as a local church to follow in their footsteps, to learn the word, to do the word, to seek open doors that you have opened, not that we have, and to trust you to give us the power to do whatever it is that lies beyond that door. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.